Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We will conclude our consideration of chapter 4 this evening. We'll be reading verses 13 through 16. Ecclesiastes 4, 13 through 16. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless his word to us this evening. Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes, we pray that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would give us the capacity to profit, to benefit uh, from your word. Bless the, bless the ministry of the word and uh, let it be fruitful. And we pray that you'd also reveal Christ to us even through this text. And we pray it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> I've lived under many presidents, and in my military career, I've served under many commanders. And in the case of presidents who have uh, presided, governed in my lifetime, and in terms of commanders under whom I've served, uh, some have been good, and some have been just sort of okay, and frankly, some of them have been pretty bad. But when it comes particularly to presidents, you know, approval ratings uh, tend to be uh, rather uh, fickle, we might say. They, they tend to decline over time, especially with a two-term president. Uh, their ratings, their popularity towards the end of that second term, a lot of, in a lot of cases, uh, isn't anywhere near what it had been in their heyday, perhaps in the early days of their uh, tenure. Presidents, leaders of all kinds, including military commanders, when they take command, sometimes uh, enjoy a little bit of what we might call a honeymoon period, good days uh, early on, but those tend to fade, be- partially because people have a tendency to, to look for change and to hope for change in improvement. So when you know the change of command is coming up, you hope that new commander is going to be good and will, will, will command well. Or when a new election cycle is coming around, people may be hoping uh, for a better leader, for better legislators. Well, as I mentioned, we, we had our call to worship from Psalm 72. 
And I didn't plan it this way, but uh, Psalm 72 is a messianic psalm. And as a messianic psalm, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about his reign and the prosperity of his kingdom. If we were to read the whole psalm, we'd read of this king, ultimately Christ, crushing those who oppress people and vindicating the upright. We read of of a reign that's marked by justice and peace. And part of the irony of having our call to worship, not irony, but just, I guess, the, the connection that we might be able to trace from Psalm 72 to our text tonight is that Psalm 72 happens to be a psalm of Solomon. The same human author that wrote our text for this evening wrote Psalm 72, and he himself was a king and had reigned. And he understood leadership. He understood government. And for much of his reign, he was a good king. But you know, later in life, Solomon, who had many wives, some of his pagan wives drew his heart away from the Lord. And he didn't remain faithful to the Lord. The scriptures tell us explicitly that he, they, his, his pagan wives turned his heart away from the Lord. So I wonder if this line, at least, about the uh, old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice isn't perhaps just a little bit autobiographical. But in any case, Solomon, other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, was the wisest man ever to walk the earth. Scripture itself tells us that. No one ever before him was as wise as God enabled Solomon to be, and there was never one like him after, except, of course, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Solomon understood leadership, and he understood what good leadership was, and surely he had enough wisdom to be able to perceive what bad leadership was also. But in the end, the only way we can drive any hope from these verses we're looking at tonight is simply to understand that Jesus Christ is the wise king that we need, whose kingdom will have no end. I want us to consider tonight vanity, which is a theme, of course, in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, uh, in these verses, though, as it particularly relates to leadership. Vanity of leadership, vanity in leadership. But then secondly, the... uh, the cycle of leaders coming and going, kings rising and falling, here today, gone tomorrow, we might say. And then finally, we'll stop to consider Jesus and his kingdom, which will have no end. But first of all, familiar, uh, vanity and leadership. Do you see the familiar refrain there at uh, the end of our text tonight? Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. We see those phrases, those Uh, expressions over and over again in Ecclesiastes. And when it says uh, this also uh, certainly has in view the text that we're looking at tonight and perhaps uh, envelops and includes the section that we looked at last time. But again, this theme of vanity, 
is so prevalent. We only have to back up to about verse 8 to see it again already. Uh, this also is vanity, it says there in verse 8. The preacher makes this point again and again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in this section, of course, he's commenting on the vanity of leadership. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. In a lot of ways, this harkens back to another uh, portion of Scripture composed by Solomon. It rings with truths that we see in the book of Proverbs, doesn't it? For instance, Proverbs 16, 16. Let's turn there together. Proverbs isn't very far away, is it? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 16 says, How much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So you see, wisdom is better than gold. Understanding is better than silver. And then look down at just a few verses from there. Verse 19 in the same chapter of Proverbs. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. So consider the content of those two verses out of Proverbs and consider kings have this tendency to acquire, to amass riches and gold, don't they? They tend to acquire gold and silver. They also tend to become very proud. They become puffed up and exalted in their pride. And when the king and his army go out and they experience a victory, who usually gets the very best of the spoil? The king. And what God's Word teaches us in these verses from Proverbs and over and over again elsewhere, it teaches us the advantage and the superiority of wisdom over riches, over spoil, even over the opportunity and the privilege of exercising authority. That's the lesson of verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. But there's another way we can read verse 13, perhaps another lesson we could derive from it. We could take verse 13 as an expression of the sentiments of the people. In other words, the people are saying, this old foolish king, we don't have much use for him anymore. People say things like that a lot. It expresses the heart of the citizens. This king who's old and foolish, he's outlived his usefulness. He may once have been able to take advice. He may once have acted and reigned wisely, but in his latter years, he's become obstinate. He's become foolish. And because the people see that trend in him, accordingly, they want new leadership. They hope for a new king. And so maybe there's this young man among them. And he's wise. He's poor, maybe, but he's winsome. He's charismatic, and he's got wisdom. He would make a fine king. Maybe that's the attitude that's being expressed here. But see, that's the kind of stuff that a coup d'etat is made of, isn't it? That's the kind of stuff that leads to insurrections. And as you know well, history is replete with coup d'etats and insurrections. Many are recorded right here in God's Word for us. 
And when that happens, when there's sort of a violent takeover of leadership, sometimes it's the result of just someone's sheer craving for power, desire to rule, just out of pure carnal human ambition. But sometimes an additional factor, or even perhaps the primary factor, has to do with some defect, whether real or imagined, in the incumbent ruler. In other words, people who are unhappy with their government are going to seek to replace their government. If they're unhappy with their king, there's bound to be people that want a new king, a different king. A once popular leader can fall out of favor. We see it in our country all the time. And they can fall out of favor either because they have failed in some way, some moral offense or some uh, misstep in their leadership, or sadly, more sadly, people can become dissatisfied with their leaders and the leader can fall out of favor simply because of the changing whims of the people. Sinful people have a tendency over time to become uh, unappreciative, even of good leadership. But what we see as we comb through these few verses of Ecclesiastes is that people's satisfaction with fresh new leadership isn't going to last either. In other words, there's this treadmill, there's this circular door, uh, uh, revolving door, where people won't remain satisfied, they won't remain content with a leader for long. A new ruler can ride a wave of popularity for a while, but look at what we see at the end of verse 16. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. So, kind of keeping in step with this drumbeat that we see throughout Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, there's vanity in leadership. Not only in the sense that human exercise of authority has such a tendency to be vanity, but equally in the sense that people's attitudes toward authority is vanity. Jesus captured this in a parable that he told. He told a parable about a nobleman. He'd gone away to receive a kingdom for himself. And you remember what his people said about him? They said, we don't want this man to reign over us. They were dissatisfied with their king, with their ruler. That's a depiction of fallen human condition. A dissatisfaction with and even a rejection of authority. And it resonates with this text in Ecclesiastes because people's favor towards their leaders is as changing as the tides. And Solomon saw that, witnessed it as a feature of human nature and vanity of life under the sun, vanity in leadership. Going on, we see this phenomenon of here today, gone tomorrow. We've kind of touched on it already, but if we think to the book of Hebrews, Pastor Mark preached through Hebrews not all that long ago, and one of the things that Hebrews points out 
is that the high priests under the Mosaic economy, under the Mosaic um, covenant, uh, could not continue in office. Why? Because they died. Being appointed to the office of high priest in ancient Israel was a lifetime appointment. But that's exactly the point. Their lives didn't continue forever. And so one high priest would die, and so they would have to anoint a new one. And theoretically, kings also serve for life. It's a lifetime appointment, uh, barring a, a coup d'etat or, or an insurrection. But it just pictures for us this revolving door of leadership. And that's something that Ecclesiastes brings out for us. In our text, it has in view this old and foolish king. And very soon, that old foolish king is going to be replaced. He may even about to be, uh, be about to be supplanted by this youth that we read about in the text. Now, another curiosity about this passage, these, these few verses uh, from Ecclesiastes, is there are some real difficulties in understanding the, the ancient Hebrew. You know, that's, one, that's one of the most challenging things about exegeting and interpreting the, the Old Testament is because the language is so old, there are some things we just aren't certain about, certain things... That, we come across passages where we can't be 100% confident exactly what it means. And this, there are several things in this text that, um, that present problems like that. For instance, there might not be two rulers in this text in view, but maybe even three. Look with me at verse 13, because uh, there we have uh, a wise youth and we've got a foolish king. But then look ahead to verse 15, where it speaks of... Uh, uh, the youth that was to stand in the king's place. Your Bible may have a footnote uh, says where it says the king's place. Actually, in Hebrew, is just his place. And so the ESV translators took some liberties. They made an interpretive decision when they translated it, the king's place. What the Hebrew says is the wise youth, or, or the youth who was to stand in his place, which might be a reference to the youth that's going to take over after the, the, the old and foolish king. So we're talking about a third king here, perhaps. But be that as it may, it just amplifies the point that rulers come and rulers go. Here today, gone tomorrow. And Solomon comments on this. You can almost imagine him. Maybe he's sitting on the roof of his palace and he's observing the masses. He's observing the people and he's seeing the drama of life under the sun and this was his observation. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place or who was to stand in his place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. So at first you've got the, all these people under the king's rule and Maybe at the time, for a, for a time, the social climate is pleasant. But in that society, amongst the masses, there's that youth. Whether it's the same one mentioned in verse 13 or not, it doesn't matter. He's eventually going to take the throne. The king is leading. The people are following. Everything's in order. 
But if the king lives long enough, if he reigns long enough, another generation is going to rise up, says the text. And the text forecasts that the rising generation won't rejoice in this king. Some Bible scholars see in these verses some parallels to the experience of Joseph. You know how Joseph, he was, the, the, the reference to being in prison, rose from prison to the throne, that certainly would, uh, could equate in some ways to Joseph. You know how Joseph came out of prison to become Pharaoh's right-hand man. He was the second ruler in the whole land. There was no one except Pharaoh himself that had higher authority in Egypt. And Joseph did much good for the nation of Egypt and really for the world, the whole world surrounding Egypt. But we read, as you know well, that after Joseph's death, a new king rose over Egypt, and that king did not know Joseph. And in that sense, he didn't rejoice in him, we might say. So all the good that Joseph had done for the people was forgotten. And that, this, this new king who didn't know Joseph, and the fact that Joseph had been forgotten, Joseph was unappreciated, there was no recollection of the benefits of his leadership. It ushered in that long and bitter period of oppression of the Israelites in the land of Egypt. She perhaps shadows of that in our text tonight. Or consider the career of Samuel. Samuel the judge. He served Israel from the days of his youth. And he did much good for the people of Israel, didn't he? Under him, they had one of the most prosperous eras in the history of the nation of Israel. We could even say that Samuel presided over something of a national revival. He turned the people away from the Baals and, and by precept and example compelled them to worship God alone. And you'd think he'd have an enduring legacy for all that, wouldn't you? And yet, in the twilight of his tenure, what did the people say? Israel foolishly and sinfully said to Samuel, give us a king. Give us a king. And by doing that, we know from Scripture that Israel ultimately was rejecting God himself. But inevitably, there's no way around it. Sam, Samuel uh, sensed a measure of personal rejection, too. There were some great kings over the people of Judah over the centuries, over the years. Some of the kings of that southern kingdom, Judah, were reformers. They were faithful men, kings like Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah. But if you go back through and read the books of First and Second Kings, or if you read First and Second Chronicles, what you find is often after there had been a good king over the people, he was succeeded by a wicked king. And the wicked king basically undid everything that the good king had done. And what can we say to that except for 
Echo the words of the end of verse 16. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. When we began our series in Ecclesiastes, remember I made the comparison, trying to, trying to capture the, the, the meaning of that word that we have in our English Bibles, vanity. What is it really getting at? What is that term encompass? And one of the comparisons I, I made was Vanity can be depicted by when you take the little bubble things that kids blow. You know, you dip it in the soap and you blow through it and little bubbles come out. Kids love that. Grown-ups do too. But, you know, you blow your bubbles and then they're gone, right? And when kids blow bubbles, moms and dads never have to tell the kids, kids, now go out and pick up all those bubbles you blew. Why? Because they're gone. They just vanish sometimes before they even hit the ground. They're fleeting, they're temporary, they're momentary. That's what vanity means. They're here one second, gone the next. And on only a slightly longer scale than the life of one of those little bubbles, I say only on a slightly larger scale, it's the same with rulers. It's the same with kings. It's the same with presidents. It's the same with all authorities except for one and that brings us to our final point because there is a kingdom that will have no end and it's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that parable I mentioned a minute ago the parable about the nobleman who went to receive a kingdom to himself and people said we will not have this man rule over us that parable Jesus told it was about himself It was about the fact that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, as we see in John chapter 1. And again, Pastor Mark recently preached on that. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Or think about the words of Psalm 118, verse 22. Very familiar words. They're familiar because they're quoted five times in the New Testament, three times by Jesus himself. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief and cornerstone. Jesus cited that three times, or we have three examples in the Bible anyway of Jesus citing that. And every time he cited it, it made the people mad. Why? Because they knew he was talking about them. You see, Jesus knew what it was to be a king whose people did not rejoice in him. But, unlike any other king, Jesus will never cease to reign. The angel came to Mary, announced that she was going to be the mother, the bearer of the Son of God. And the angel, speaking about her son, said, of his kingdom there will be no end. So as Solomon in Ecclesiastes observes life and makes commentary, he's making commentary upon and he's observing life under the sun here in this present age on this fallen soil. Consider the contrasts between what Solomon sees under the sun and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Mere human leaders can become smug, they can become callous, they can become obstinate, 
They can become like this king in chapter 4, verse 13. Become foolish and no longer able to take advice. But Jesus is the very embodiment of wisdom. And He never changes. His wisdom, His goodness, just like He Himself, are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is not like earthly kings who may begin well but finish poorly, whose administration starts on a strong note but then He falls into scandal. That doesn't happen with Jesus. Because Jesus does all things well. Look with me again at verse 14. We've got something of a rags-to-riches story there. He went, speaking of this youth, he went from prison to the throne. And we love rags-to-riches stories, don't we? But contrast that to the story of Jesus. Jesus was born rich. He had been on the throne from eternity past. He was high and lifted up in his own kingdom. He was worshipped by the angelic host. And rather than a rags-to-riches story, the story of the Lord Jesus Christ is a riches-to-rags story. Why? Because though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. But after he became poor for our sakes... After the good shepherd gave up his life for the sheep. After he laid down his life, he took it up again. He said, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He rose again and he ascended again to his father and he is on his throne and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ is the wise king we need whose kingdom will have no end. Let's pray. Father, your word pierces us. It sees into our hearts. It sees into our society. It sees into our culture and assesses it perfectly. And we've seen an example of that in our passage tonight, but we thank you also that it doesn't leave us hopeless in the vanity and the striving after wind that characterizes life in this present age. Thank you that your word points us to Christ. And we thank you for him, our wise and eternal king, whose reign will have no end. Lord, may we trust in him and may you, uh, by your grace, grant that we may reign with him throughout eternity. This is our prayer. This is our hope. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.